We'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you to, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep the conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body that on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the bright braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothing. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For... This is how the holy woman who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her child, and if you do good and do, and do not fear anything, that is frightening. Likewise, husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weak, weaker vessel, since they are 
heirs with you of the grace of life so that you, your prayer may not be hindered. Finally, all of you, have unity in mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and, to, and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts regard Christ as Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with a gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil." I appreciated the song we sang earlier. Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. Those words resonated with me in light of the text that we'll be looking at here in 1 Peter. And I would ask it in the form of a question perhaps in light of the words there in that hymn, is it enough for you that Jesus saves? Is the fact that Jesus saves you sufficient to end your fear and your doubt? I do hope that when you sing, and by the way, I do hope you sing But when you do sing, I hope and I pray that you are taking to heart the words that you're singing. These are words are instructive for us. First Peter chapter 3, 15 and 16. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Or some translations perhaps sanctify the Lord as Christ. Christ as Lord in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear. Having a good conscience. That when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. Those two verses are perhaps the highlight verses, if you will, in verses 8 through 17. It's hard just to dive right in, though, as I've spoken this on more than one occasion. 
Those are, are wonderful words in and of themselves. But it is helpful to have some context here. Always helpful to have some context. If I was to put forward a summary of this particular letter, 1 Peter. It's a letter of hope, a letter of encouragement to the elect, to the believer. So if you're here today and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is intended to be a word of encouragement and hope to you as well. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ and you're here today, I do hope and pray that through our time in this word this morning, that the Lord would draw you unto himself so that you might be able to see the riches available to you in Jesus Christ. And to help you see that the trials, the persecutions, the sufferings that you may experience and go through in this lifetime, to go through those periods in your life without Jesus Christ, it's empty. It leads down a road to dead end. It's fruitless. And I wanted to say that up front. Because each time I stand, I, I, I don't... I don't assume, I don't want to assume that every single one of you sitting in a chair have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Some of you here perhaps do not. So right up front, I want to encourage you with this encouragement from 1 Peter. So a letter of hope, a letter of encouragement written to the elect, to the believers. What else? It's a letter that is written to this group of believers in, if we look at verse 1, excuse me, um, we look at verse, verse 1, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in, so this gives us the region, the area, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. If you look on your map, you'll be able to see this, Asia, okay? If you're looking on the Mediterranean map, you'll be able to see these regions, these areas. These are the believers in particular, that Peter is writing this letter to as he's moved by the Holy Spirit. So, letter of hope, letter of encouragement, written to the believers in this particular area. And this particular letter would have been an encouragement and a help, especially in the midst of the context which was trials, suffering, persecution. I can't think of how wonderful it would have been to have been a recipient hearing this letter in light of the context. Written somewhere 63, 64, that time period. Right smack dab in the middle of a guy named Nero. Roman Emperor. Perhaps you've heard of him. Perhaps you've heard some of the things that he did. Perhaps 
you start putting pieces together historically of why such a letter would be important to a group of believers at this time. In light of such suffering, in light of such persecution, this letter would have been a refreshment to the soul. Much needed refreshment to the soul for the believers. See, this particular letter is birthed out of what God has done. That's where he begins. This whole letter is birthed out of what God has done. And, and who better to write this letter than a man who had been transformed? And we see it, don't we, in the scripture. In the gospels, moving to after the gospels too, when Christ ascends and the Holy Spirit comes and you see God using Peter. Oftentimes, he's the one who's standing to speak on behalf of the twelve. Peter was no perfect man. But Peter was transformed by the power of God. Peter was transformed as he came to realize the significance of Christ not only crucified, but Christ resurrected. Peter came to understand that what Romans talks about, about how we are in Christ and being in Christ, if we died with Christ, in Christ, we've been buried with Christ, we've been raised also with Christ. Peter came to understand what it means to be raised with Christ, to walk in newness of life. It's all over this epistle. So, a letter birthed out of what God has done, about the life that he calls the believer to live. This is important. The life that he's called the believer to live in the present, in this particular testing environment. And yet, time and again, in this epistle, he's pointing the believer to what is yet to come. I said this is a, a letter of encouragement, a letter of hope. That hope is seen in this letter. That they're going through and perhaps are about to enter into. I get the idea as I read this epistle that yes, they are experiencing suffering, persecution, trials. But the worst of what's to come is probably still yet ahead of them as I read this letter. So they've already entered into it, in, at least in part. But are getting ready to really go through a messy time. All the more reason to have hope. We don't talk a lot about hope. This is not the kind of hope that, oh, I hope so-and-so makes it back in time. This hope is rooted and, and grounded in Jesus Christ, in what Jesus has done. It's rooted in the fact that he's going to do what he said he was going to do, he's going to come back. There's a sense of certainty there 
holding on to hope. A believer holds on in hope. A believer ought to be characteristic of hope that when the world sees you go through something in your life that's hard, that's difficult, that's messy, and they see how you go through it. They see the hope that you have. That's a powerful witness. That's a powerful testimony. That's characteristic of a believer in Jesus Christ. As I was studying this and and setting out to truly understand, in particular, 15 and 16 of chapter 3, I backed up to chapter 3, verse 8. And that was helpful, but not entirely. The more I studied, the more I realized what, what Peter is doing here is he's moved by the Spirit to write this epistle. You see, understanding the truth of 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16 is is magnified once you have some idea of what he's shared up to this point, what he's doing in this letter. By the way, how many of you read the letter this week? Okay, a couple of you, a handful of you. Encourage you, since a lot of you didn't, read the letter. After hearing the message today, Read the letter, read the entirety of the letter. Because I believe it will be helpful for you as you hear and look at this particular text in chapter 3 of 1 Peter. That, that reading of the entirety of the letter will be helpful for you. But he begins, if you look in chapter 1, he begins with this wonderful salvation. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy, his abundant mercy, that mercy, Titus says, is is mercy that saves us as well. That mercy, the, the writer in Lamentations says, is new every day. You woke up this morning, his mercies are new. Today. His abundant mercy, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. That's kind of an odd phrase, isn't it? He's begotten us again. See, he gave you and me, he gave us an opportunity to be born into this world, didn't he? You didn't just arrive here because you thought it might be a good idea. You had nothing to do with it. He's begotten us again. Again. How about a rebirth? A new birth? This birth that, remember, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus was sort of puzzled about. How can I be born again? And Jesus goes on to explain to this learned teacher what that's all about. The text here says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to what? A living hope. A living hope. Through what? That living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is fact. You know, when when, when he talks about hope in this epistle, which he does on a few different occasions, right here, chapter 1, verse 3, right out of the gate, It's as though he's stating fact. Let me tell you a fact. 
the hope that you have is rooted, grounded, predicated upon this one thing. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That, that doesn't happen, you have no hope. In fact, similar ideas, similar wording you could find in Corinthians 15, wonderful passage about the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. Isn't it wonderful to know that your inheritance does not fade away? Amen? It's wonderful to know that. Reserved in heaven for you. Reserved. Who are kept by the power of God. You see, if you are in Christ, if you are a believer in Jesus, if you are, have that union with Christ, this inheritance that you have, which only comes, by the way, remember, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It does not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. How are you kept? Is it by your works? Is it by just doing enough? No. That's not what the text says. You're kept by the power of God. Amen. That's good news. Through faith. For salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, he's, he's going to talk about this pointing toward what's yet to come throughout this epistle. In this you greatly rejoice. In this you greatly rejoice. I'll stop right here because this is something we need to rejoice about. We don't rejoice enough about this salvation. Oh, we gather together on Sunday, we talk about it. We hear from the word about it. But my fear is, my concern is, that when we walk back through those doors and we walk out those doors to go back out into our cars, it disappears. The rejoicing that was once in here doesn't continue out there. In church, the rejoicing in your salvation needs to continue out there. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be. You have been grieved. You've been distressed by various trials. Anyone here been through a trial? Go ahead and raise your hand. Because if you haven't, you're, you're lying. Everybody's been through a trial of some kind. Okay? A trial. May not be the same kind of trial these believers were going through. But you've been through a trial. You've been grieved by them. That the genuineness... Of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes. Gold that perishes. This, it's the genuineness of your faith. There's, there's, a, there's a purpose here attached to your trials. That the genuineness of your faith, though it is tested by fire. What's fire do? Burns, doesn't it? Is this a real thing or not? You see, the way God tests your faith, one of the ways is by taking you through the fire. 
of trial. Think about it. If there were no trials, how would we really know? How would the Lord be able to tell? Now, the Lord obviously is in a different category, but I'm talking about for us sitting here today, how would we know if everything was always fine and dandy and we always lived on top of the mountain? It's when we go through those hard times. The psalmist says, when I go through the valley of the shadow of death, what's he say? I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and staff, they comfort me. And they do that. He begins by talking about our salvation. Though it's tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There it is again, pointing toward what's yet to come. These things that we go through in our trials, the idea is that they may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That how we go through these things, we can give our Lord praise and glory. Church, that's not easy to do, is it? But let me ask the question. Does the Lord, does the Lord specialize in calling you to an easy task? I, I, you know, when I read the Bible, I don't see a lot of easy assignments, if any. Jonah, go to Nineveh. I don't care to go to Nineveh. I don't want to go to Nineveh. So he goes the other way. Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah goes to Nineveh. He still has got some heart issues, no doubt. But he goes. And you can look through Scripture and you can see the assignments the Lord gives. His own son went to a cross, didn't he? He begins by talking about this wonderful salvation. And then he talks, pick it up in 13, gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Speaking to believers, be sober and rest your hope. Here it is again, hope. Rest your hope fully upon the grace Fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Are you seeing a pattern here? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Christ comes back, the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the context of trials, suffering, and persecution, the mind, the mind of the believer is especially important. Especially important. Because you see, your thinking can be tripped up, it can be snared, or it can be sharpened through this particular period. Peter is exhorting the believers to gird up the loins of their mind, to be sober, to later on in chapter 5, he says, to be watchful, to be alert. Why? Why does he say that? Because there is a, an adversary, isn't there? The devil. And the picture that Peter gives us in this text is that of a lion, a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now we realize that even the adversary 
has constraints. Even the adversary, that song we sing about a mighty fortress is our God. One little word shall fell him, right? I love that line in the song. He's allowed to do what we read Job 1 and 2. He's allowed to do only that which God says yes to. Only that which God says and allows. However, I believe there is work, according to what I read in 1 Peter, there is work for the believer in Jesus Christ to be about doing. If we are walking around blindly, aimlessly, not living in light of the hope, living hope that's been begotten to us through the resurrection. If we're just staggering around as a believer, kind of aimlessly going and wandering, guess what we're going to open ourselves up to? We're going to open the door for the adversary. You're going to open the door for the adversary. All the more reason A disciplined mind becomes very important. What are you taking in? The Philippians 4, 8 stuff, right? Whatever is good, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is excellent, whatever is noble, praiseworthy. Think about such things. Those are the kinds of things. Are you thinking about those kinds of things? Is your mind set on the Colossians 3, 1 stuff? Set above, not on things here or the earth? Are you doing as Peter says here? Girding up. The loins of your mind. Resting your hope fully upon the grace. There's that, that a charge here. The first, first time hope's mentioned, it's a fact. Here it is. This is how this, this living hope is available to us. Here it's a charge. Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober. Rest your hope fully upon the grace that's to be brought to you. Church, we're called to use our minds for the glory of God. To hide this word in our heart, yes. But to meditate on these things. To meditate, use our mind to absorb and soak up what his word says. So that we know then how to live. See, I think perhaps as a believer we've treated this book as less than a book. And not more than a book. It's much more than a book. God's word. Convicted of these things this week. The importance of this word. In the midst of the battle. In the midst of what we're going through. It's much more than just intellectual stuff. It's having it that we might know how to live it. Peter's message is such here that living the Christian life in the midst of the trial involves your mind. Your mind, what you think about, how you process things that come your way. Look at verse 223, uh, chapter 1, verse 23. Having been born again, okay? That, that idea back in the beginning of chapter 1, begotten us again. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God. How are we born again? Through the word of God. Is this not the truth of the gospel? Faith comes by what? 
Hearing. Hearing by what? The word of God. Nothing new here. The word of God. He's talking about salvation. This wonderful salvation that's been given to us. He's talking not only about what's been given to us. He talks about how now to live it in the present. In the midst of the trials and the suffering. And now he's talking about this word. That's going to be the resource to help us live it. It's going to be the instruction for how to live and walk. That's how we've been born again. Through the word of God. Which lives and abides forever. Well, what else is helpful for the believer in Christ walking through the trials? Closely connected to the mind you see here in the end of chapter 1, end of chapter 2 is the word. Look at chapter 2. Therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word. That you may grow thereby. That you may, there's a purpose to desire the pure milk of the word. That you may grow thereby. This word is intended that you may grow. Some of you perhaps have been a Christian for some 20 plus years. And yet I ask you, have you grown? Are you still a spiritual infant? Let me ask it this way. Are you still content being a spiritual infant? That's not how it's drawn up in the word. As newborn babes, we have a few of those newborn babes, don't we? Just like those newborn babes and how they crave that milk. The believer in Jesus Christ, especially in the context of suffering, persecution, trials, especially, ought to be desiring the pure milk of the word as well, that you may grow thereby. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Anyone here tasted that the Lord is gracious? Anyone? Just a few of you. Yeah. I hope we all have. At some level. Tasted that the Lord is gracious. This word becomes very important. Becomes very important. Salvation. Living in light of that salvation. Resource for living out that salvation in the word. And then there's this, then he's driving us toward how then we're to live this out together. Because see, this is not a solo mission. He's not sending you upon a solo mission here. It's in the context of how do we do this together? Look at chapter 2, starting verse 9. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a holy nation. It's who you are in Christ, a holy nation. His own special people that you may proclaim. Why? In light of all of that, what's the outcome of that? What's, what's supposed to flow out of the fact of who we are? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness. You were swimming around in the darkness. You were dead, Ephesians 2. 
Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Honorable among the Gentiles. Conduct honorable, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, by your good works. It reminds me of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. That by your good works, they may see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. That's the goal. The good works are not so that someone could come up and say, Oh, wow, you are something else. Thank you. No, he's, he's given you those gifts and those talents and abilities to point other people to God. To the Savior. To their need for a Savior. This is not about us. It's never been about us. So now Peter's going somewhere. He's talked about all of this leading up to chapter 2, verse 13. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. What we're going to see, if you mark in your Bibles, you might mark this. This is pretty important. In chapter 2, verse 13, that word submit. Submit yourselves. He's, going to, he's talking to them now about submitting themselves. How do we live this? Right? Talk about our salvation, the big idea of salvation, the importance of salvation, reminder of salvation. And then the importance of using our mind that as we live this salvation out, it's important that we consider this word. This word that, that abides forever, doesn't fade away. It's important that we understand and taste of this. Feed ourselves on this word because here's the thing. If we don't understand some of those things we've already talked about, what's coming here in Peter, the people are not going to receive very well. He's talking about submission. That's not a word that, that, that our culture likes today. Women in particular in our culture. But here, the submission, notice, chapter 2, verse 13. The believer is to submit himself to the governing authority, right? Romans 13 speaks of this same idea. A few verses later, look at verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters. And perhaps today we could equate that with workplace relationship. Okay? Servants, be submissive to your masters. With all fear. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it, verse 20, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Would this not have been an encouragement to the heart of one who was a servant and had a master? It was harsh in particular. This also applies to maybe where you're at. Maybe you're at a workplace. Maybe you have someone over you who's not necessarily the kind of boss that you'd like him to be. I believe there's a word here. 
for you. Someone who's sitting here today who has a boss, perhaps he's doing things that you don't agree with. Perhaps he's, he's the kind of guy that, you know, not, just, not the kind of guy you'd like to hang around with in particular. But he's your boss. How do I do that? The word gives us instructions. Be submissive. Hupatasso. You're probably familiar with that word. It's originally, it's like a military term, right? To align oneself under another. Well, it keeps going. Chapter 3, verse 1. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. He's still talking about being submissive. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands. When the word is talked about toward the wives in terms of being submissive, I want you to notice that in the text it's always to your own husband. Ephesians says, as unto the Lord. Be submissive to your own husbands. And this is in the context, this particular context of one spouse who is in Christ and the other one is not in Christ. How do we do that? How do we live that out? And there's a lot here on wives and there's one verse on husbands. Without taking great time to go into detail on that, suffice it to say that in the context of the culture, for a wife to be changed and converted to Christianity and the husband not to, that wife could really be in some hot water. Could be a really furnace of affliction, if you will, for the wife. You see, because if the husband was changed, his heart was, was changed to the, to the Lord, more times than not, the wife would follow. Peter's giving instruction here to the wife. spends most of his time talking about the wife. Because I believe it would have been very difficult in that particular culture, in that particular environment, for that scenario, for that wife to walk through that scenario. How do I do that? He's giving instruction. How to live in light of the trials that come your way. Be submissive. Verse 7, husbands, likewise. Likewise. Likewise what? Likewise, be submissive. Be submissive. Dwell with them with understanding. Giving honor to the wife. By the way, there's a purpose to all that at the end of verse 7, which I love. That your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands. There's a word there. And then you get to verse 8. Finally. Finally. Not finally we got to verse 8, but finally. Some of you are thinking that. Finally we got to verse 8. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. We were, in fact, we were on the van here this morning. We usually read the text before we arrive here. And Jennifer was opening up the word and she started to read and I, I began the text. I said, finally! And she closed the Bible. She said, you just want to read it to us? And I said, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead and read it. I just, just wanted to, I like that, the way it begins. Finally, all of you. And uh, we got to talking about how interesting it would be. I said, you know, finally. We're just going to have a message today on that first word of verse 8. Finally! We're talking about finally. But finally becomes very important in the context He's talked about all of these things in 2.13, 2.18, 3 verse 1, 3 verse 7. Now finally, he's still talking about this. In what context? All of you. All of you believers. Let's apply it right here for a moment. All of you. Be of one mind. 
We've seen that word a few times in the book of Acts, haven't we? Having compassion for one another. By the way, these are, these are imperatives, many of them. Charges. This is what we're to be. One another, okay? Be of one mind. Having compassion, sympathy for one another. Love as brothers. Love as brothers. That's three words, but it's powerful. In other words, love as a believer ought to love. Jesus said in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give you, what? To love one another. Be tenderhearted. By the way, tenderhearted there, the idea of tenderhearted and compassion, those, those words have in mind not just feeling sorry for someone in, in a state that they may find themselves in, but this tenderhearted, the word actually there has in mind to take action upon what you feel toward the other person. Isn't it interesting how often that may occur? We hear about something happening to someone. Could be a good thing. Perhaps it's a bad thing. And we hear about it and we go, oh, and that, that's, that's, that's too bad. And we don't do a thing about it. We don't write a note. We don't make a phone call. We don't perhaps provide me. I mean, we, there's all kinds of things we could do. But we don't do it. That's not a heart of compassion, church. Compassion sees and hears the need and then does what? Reaches out to help. Reaches out to extend. One other thing while I'm on this one. That extending help one to another who is in need. It's going to cost something. Perhaps you've hesitated from extending a hand, a need to someone in the body because you know it's going to cost you something. And you'd rather not either spend money or take time, whatever, to do it. Church, the word has called us to be about doing these things together. If we're parts of the body connected one to another, that's what we're to be about. It's going to cost something. Look at verse 9. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Oh, this is hard. Anyone else, anyone else agree this, this one's hard? Not returning evil for evil, reviling for reviling. Because, you know, I had a situation this past week. Different, different situation, context, you know, suffering, persecution, different kind of context. But the living it out kind of application. I'm coming out, I'm getting gasoline. I just got a gun, I'm pulling my car around, I'm at a, I'm at a gas station, and this guy's coming through the parking lot of the mire. And he, I saw him coming, and, you know, you assume that somebody's going to stop. And the guy kept on slowly going, and I swerved my wheel over, and I did a quick glance back, and the guy's on his telephone. I had a few things I wanted to say to the guy, like, get off the phone. My, 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 my flesh immediately pounced. Anybody ever done that? Okay, good, I'm not alone. But it's real. You see, because in that moment, returning something for what he did, for his foolishness. Praise the Lord. He didn't hit the car. We had no accident. Praise the Lord. 
But there are moments when we would desire to return the very same thing to someone for what they've done to us. That is not how a believer in Jesus Christ is called to live. Contrary to many other religions out there. In fact, the text goes on and says, but on the contrary, blessing. So someone who does evil and reviles me, you mean to tell me that that I'm supposed to return to them blessing? There are a lot of times I don't, that's the last, that's the furthest thing from my mind is blessing that other person. And yet, the scripture calls us to a contrary kind of life, doesn't it? Now, we're not to live as the Gentiles live, as the world operates. It goes on. It gets harder and more difficult here. Knowing that you were called to this. Not only is this what you're supposed to do. Not only is this how you're supposed to react and respond to these situations that come your way in the midst of trial. You were called to this. Wow. Called to this for a purpose too, I see. That you may inherit a blessing. That you may inherit a blessing. If you skip back over to chapter 2, when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Verse 21, for to this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. So you see, when we understand this is what we're called to, why are we called to this? What's, what's Christ, it points us back to Christ. Very same thing. In fact, if you keep reading verse 23, when he was reviled, what did he do? Did not revile in return. When he was, when he was suffering, what did he do? He did not threaten. You know, if there was ever a time, I say this in the scripture, if there was ever a time when you would want to retaliate, it would have been that time when Christ is on the cross and those guys come walking by and they're mocking him. Ooh, you come down from here. You know what? That's the one time in the scripture, that's the one time I would have loved to have seen Jesus do something. I mean, I just, just a part of me there, I just would have loved to have seen it. But I know that's not how he operates. You see, elsewhere in the Bible it talks about people's reward and their reward in full here. You see, we've got a reward. It's not here. We need to be about practicing these very things. These are, these are not just passed by words here in verses 8 and 9. These are hard, challenging, difficult words. By the way, Romans chapter 12 is a good parallel here. Romans chapter 12 is an excellent parallel here to what we're talking about. That you may inherit a blessing. Uh, by the way, that just a, a quick reminder on inheriting a blessing. Reminds me of that, that, that story that Jesus told in Matthew 25. Remember the sheep and the goats? Remember that? All the nations be gathered. He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep. He will set the sheep on the right hand, goats on the left. Then the king will, come, will say to those on his right, Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
you've blessed from my Father. Come. What a wonderful thing to inherit, that blessing from the Father. And then we get scripture on the back end of that word in verse 9. By the way, this comes from Psalm 34. Thank you, Frank, for reading Psalm 34 this morning. That was a, uh, a delight to hear that in light of it being in the text. He who would love life and see good days. Would you love life and see good days? See, this is, while Peter on one hand is talking about doing good, doing the right thing. We know, being in Christ Jesus, that doing good, doing the right thing, is not, it's, it's not, it's not all there is. We're not talking about just being morally good people. Because you and I both know, there are morally good people who are not in Christ Jesus. Peter is talking about something more than just doing good. But he's building upon this. Let him refrain his tongue from evil. And his lips from speaking deceit. So our words, what we speak, let him turn away from evil and do good. Turn away from evil. Hate evil, cling to what is good, right? I believe Thessalonians, Paul says that. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace. Many imperatives here too, commands. These are not options. This is the way a believer is to live. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. They're on the righteous. And his ears are open to the prayers, to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's important we understand the eyes of the Lord here, verse 12, on the righteous. Verse two, chapter 2, verse 24, talking about Jesus who bore our sins in his own body, that we, having died to sins, that's important, having died to sins because being in Christ, we've, we've died to those sins, we might live for righteousness. Live for righteousness. Paul says in Romans 6 that our members are to be what? Instruments, members of righteousness. That's how we're to live now, being in Christ. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Let us be about practicing and exercising righteousness. 1 John chapter 2 talks about this very same thing. The one who practices righteousness is in Christ. All right, so verse 13. Hang in there, we're just about done. Who is he who will harm you? The word harm there has the same form of the word at the end of verse 12, evil. Right? The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you or cause evil to you if you become followers of what is good? Now, there's a real sense here in what Peter's saying. It's true. Right? I mean, if we go back through the list, you know, if you are an upstanding citizen... You know, God has put the the governing authorities in place, not only to punish those who are evil and doing wrong, but to, what to say? Verse 14, for the praise of those who do good as well. If you're doing good, if you're going the speed limit, odds are you're not going to get pulled over. Conversely, if you don't go the speed limit, if you go beyond the speed limit, Perhaps you get pulled over. You become a lawbreaker. Who's going to harm you? If you are in a work situation where you're being submissive to your boss, 
and you're trying to do the right things, you've got a right attitude, you've got a right spirit, more than likely, things are going to go well for you. If you're in a marriage context, and the husband as the head, and the wife as the submissive helpmate, I use those terms, that's what the Bible uses. If you are doing those things to the best of your ability as God helps you, your marriage probably, in general, will go well. In the context of suffering, persecution, and trials, Peter says, who's going to harm you? Who's going to do evil to you if you become followers of what's good? But now he ups it just a bit. Verse 14. But, even if you should, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. A little bit later, chapter 4, verse 14, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he's blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. You're blessed. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake. Right on the heels of that he gives us another scripture. Isaiah chapter 8 verse 12. And do not be afraid of their threats. Nor be troubled. Do not be afraid of their threats. Nor be troubled. See it sits in the context of a time when God was talking to Isaiah and about the Assyrian army come, that's coming and, and, and the concerns and the, and, the, and the worries that were there. And he's telling Isaiah, don't be worried about these kinds of things. Don't be worried. Don't have your focus upon this. In fact, I believe it's instructive just to read the verse because it's wonderful. Verse 11, the Lord, this is Isaiah 8, 11, The Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Verse 13, here it is, church. This perhaps is one that we need to put up on a refrigerator magnet. Isaiah 8, 13, The Lord of hosts, him you shall hollow. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Don't be afraid of what other people are doing. Don't be afraid of the threats. And here it is. In this context, if you don't hear anything else, I hope you hear this. Because we're right on the, on the cusp of verse 15. And when people put verse 15 out there into the air, oftentimes they, they put it out into the air without verse 14. Verse 15 sits in the context of fear. Fear. Uncertainty. But, that's how it begins, verse 15. The end of 14, do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. You see, before and, and from this point forward, he's going to talk much about suffering. 
Here's, here's what's interesting. Notice he doesn't talk about suffering necessarily right out of the gate. It's not until he's reminded them about their salvation. What a wonderful salvation they've been given. It's not until he's talked about how then to live this. How as with the mind to make sure that you are being girding up the loins of your mind. Being sober. How you walk. Walk in a holy manner. Why? Because God said, I am holy. This is the way you need to be conducting yourself while you're here. How are we going to conduct ourselves in that manner? Through the word, through the enduring and abiding word that never perishes, never passes away. It's a word that's intended for, for use. It's a word then that's intended for me to grow. In the context of trials, tribulations, things that go on, is this not important? Because you see, then he keeps on going. And now he talks about submission. Submission. Submission to the governing authorities. Submission in your workplace. Slaves, masters, submission in your marriage relationship. Submission one to another in the body of Christ. Finally, verse 8. And now we get to this. You see, he doesn't truly get into talking about suffering until he's established and painted the picture for these believers Submission came first. Oh, that's such an important idea, concept for us to grasp as we try to understand what it means to sanctify the Lord God in our heart. If we're not submissive, if we have not a submissive spirit in us, how in the world are we going to set apart Christ as Lord in our lives? Set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. I believe Jesus said that we are to love the Lord, God, with all of your what? All of your heart. We're to love him with all of our heart. Here we're to sanctify. We are to set apart as holy the Lord God. Christ as Lord. When I think of Lord, I, I describe that at home to some of the children in thinking about Lord. A way just to kind of get a handle on that is, is to think about him, and I don't mean this at all in a derogatory sense, but it was something I was trying to do to be helpful to, in their understanding. Essentially it means he's the boss now. He's the Lord, he's the boss. What he says, that's what we do. So when we're setting apart Christ as Lord, we no longer walk as the Gentiles walk, right? Scripture said. We now walk differently. And we walk differently now because we have been given a Holy Spirit who abides in us forever. And he points us to the very things of Christ. We abide, John 15, in the vine of Christ. We walk differently now. As we sanctify the Lord apart in our hearts, in our hearts. Notice it's not, he doesn't begin with in your things that you do. If you just do A, B, C, D, E, that's going to show other people that you've set him apart. No. Sanctify, set him apart as holy in your hearts. You remember that passage in Deuteronomy 6 that said very much that same thing. 
that these words that I give you today are to be in your heart. That you might what? Then impress them upon your children. Always be ready to give a defense. Apologia. A defense. Always be ready to give a defense. You know what? There's some confusion that abounds today on this particular word in this. There, there are some who, who actually believe that this apologia, which we've created this word, right? Uh, apologetics. It's not a group of people who get together and just apologize and say they're sorry one to another. Apologetics is tied in here to apologia, a defense. And, and my understanding of the word is a defense whereby you use your mouth to speak. And you see in the book of Acts several occasions of this idea. The apostle Paul, right? Does he not give wonderful defense when he's on trial? In fact, in Acts chapter 23, in Acts chapter 23, I believe it's verse 11. Yeah. Following night, the Lord stood by him. Paul said, be of good courage, be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. You see, Paul had been giving defense. What is the Lord saying to Paul here? about his defense, his words. What is he saying about apologetics, about making a defense? If you read his trials in Acts, one of the things you come away with, I believe pretty clearly, he's not just stating some facts that happened in his life. He's stating some things with the hope that those who are listening will what? Hear and be saved. It's not apologetics. It's not what the Lord is saying to Paul here. This is evangelism. This, here, here's, let's blow this myth. Can we just blow and detonate this myth up right here? Apologetics being some box whereby only specialists in the area of apologetics, have any understanding, say so, to be able to talk about. That's not what I read in this Bible. Apologetics, giving a defense, is for every single believer in Christ. Don't think for one moment you are exempt from giving a defense. Don't think for one moment that when trial, persecution, suffering comes, and perhaps it's going to come in your lifetime, that when it comes time, are you going to be able to give a defense to everyone? Not just your dad and mom, children. Children, you need to stand. You need to have a defense. And that defense comes from this word. That's what we speak. 
We don't speak on our own authority. We speak from the word, but we have a defense. Do you have a defense? You know, one of the reasons, not the reason, one of the reasons why we're having, taking opportunity is the church membership to be able to share testimonies. Give a defense for the hope. Do you have a hope? See, if you're sitting here today and you're not in Christ, you have no hope. In fact, Ephesians 2 says that very thing. You are without God. You are without strangers, right? You are without Christ, without hope. You sit here today, you have no hope. You cannot effectively give a defense unless you have a hope. And that hope comes, that living hope comes only through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you sit here today and you've been saying no to Jesus and no to Jesus and no to Jesus, you cannot, you cannot give a defense. Some of you are in Christ here today. Well, let me ask, when was the last time someone asked you for a reason for the hope that's in you? Think about that for just a moment. When was the last time someone asked you about that? Think about it this way. Have you ever taken this text and, and thought, you know, it would be a great exercise to practice asking that question to someone else who perhaps is not in Christ? What hope do you have? What kind of answer do they give you? And perhaps that gives you an open door to be able to talk about the hope you have. You see, I believe that over time, if over time and over time and over time, there is no dialogue. That's a good word, dialogue, in relationship to what we're talking about, giving a defense. If there's no dialogue with others about these things of the faith, well, church, why? What, what, what are we doing? If we're not talking about these things of the word, What are we doing? Because when we look at the text, back in Peter, always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason. A reason there is logos. It's from the word logos, a, a, an understanding, right? And, and a reason for the hope that is in you. And we do that how? With meekness and fear. See, that's very, that's very important as well because... If we give them a reason, if we give them a defense, and we do it poorly, if we don't handle it well, if we don't do it with meekness and fear, we can ruin the whole thing, can't we? So our content and our conduct go hand in hand, don't they, in how we share this defense. Having a good conscience, verse 16 says. Having a good conscience. You know what? Here's what I found to be true. It is hard, if not impossible, for you to effectively give a defense when your life speaks a life lived out in sin. Do you ever find that to be true? That the opportunity is there and, and you don't walk through that door or you feel bad about going through that door and giving a defense because in your con you, have, you don't have a good conscience. And this goes back to a lot of things Peter's already talked about, how to live in Christ. Having a good conscience. 
It's so wonderful. It's so freeing to be able to give a defense when you do have a good conscience, clean conscience. Paul talks about that quite a lot in Corinthians. Having a good conscience, verse 16, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ, there it is, in Christ, your good conduct, it's not just good behavior, it's good conduct in Christ, that they may be ashamed. For it's better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. I listened to a message this week. I enjoy the opportunity to be able to listen to the word preached as well. On Sunday morning, I don't, I don't get that opportunity. So I like to take opportunity to be able to do that. This past week, I listened to a message that really spurred me on, if you will, in this arena of what we're talking about. I'd be glad to share more about this particular message afterwards. But one of the things that came out in this particular message as he was speaking to these truths in 1 Peter chapter 3 was being ready to give a defense. Being ready to give a defense. And asking the question, what is it that we fear? What do we fear? Do we fear intimidation? Perhaps. Do we fear inadequacy on our end? Perhaps. Maybe that's where you're at. It's important that we understand the heart of this battle that we're talking about. The heart of the battle. Confidence in God's word. You see, it's a very big battle. And we've been given a weapon. A sword. The word. So what is this biggest battle in our life? As we look to Peter chapter 3. This battle involves getting us insecure in our confidence as to the reliability, the efficiency, the effectiveness of that sword. And it'll always be like that. The battle's always going to be like that because if you can be shaken at this level, everything else will disappear. And the best way to keep a sword sharp is to uh, keep on using it. So as we look at the text and we close, there are many other things I'd love to share this morning. We'll just have to continue the conversations this afternoon. What is the prerequisite for defending the gospel? I believe the text would say, sanctify in your heart Jesus Christ as Lord. Set him apart as your supreme value. 
Don't fear. Don't be afraid. He's always going to be with you. He's never going to, here's the promise in the scripture, he's never going to leave you nor forsake you. When the door opens to give the defense, give the defense. He will give you a mouth and give you a wisdom in the same way he gave Peter and John a mouth and a wisdom in the book of Acts. I, I, if you, they had the same Holy Spirit you have in you. They didn't have a different Holy Spirit. They didn't have bonus power of the Holy Spirit. Church, let's be about this work. The one who has provided salvation, the one who has given us the means to live out this salvation in our life, has given us a mind to think. I pray that in our own homes, parents, we would provide opportunities for our children to think. To think. So that when the day comes that they leave our home, they're going to have a mind that's been sharpened on the word of God. They're going to have a faith they can call their own. It's not a faith of dad and mom. It's a real faith. It's a real living, walking, breathing, understanding of the battle that I'm in. And yet, in, in the battle, I understand I have everything I need. Colossians chapter 2 says that you are complete in Christ. You know, people today are going and they're searching for a lot of different things. They're searching for a lot of different things. They think that, that this and this and this and this, that those are the answers to their problems. Let me tell you, that is not the answer to the problem. The answer to the problem, all the answers to all of your problems are right here in the Word of God. Will you trust Him in the midst of what you're going through? Will you trust Him? Sanctify the Lord God in your heart. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you the reason, the word, the understanding that's within you. And church, carry that out in the spirit of meekness and fear. Let's pray. Father, thank you for lighting a, a fire in, in my own heart, Lord, in regard to your word. Father, I thank you for your preached message. I thank you for opportunities that we have to hear your word preached. And I pray, Lord, that, that each time we have opportunity to hear your word preached, Lord, that we would be listening attentively to what your spirit would be teaching us. Father, I pray this body at Hope in Christ, I pray that this church would always be ready. That they would not be caught off guard on occasions to speak, to give a defense. Father, I pray that, that your words would be ready to speak. Whether Christian, non-Christian, we would have words ready to speak. We would have a defense ready to deliver. We would have some good news to share of the one who, who transformed us, translated us, if you will, from darkness into the wonderful kingdom of light that we may proclaim the praises 
of this God, this almighty God, this wonderful God who from before the foundations of the world orchestrated and came up with this plan of salvation. Thank you, Father. And we get to be a part of it. That we've been called into this to be an active participant in the life of Christ. May we desire with our whole heart to walk in the way that Christ himself walked. Help us to be ready, Lord. We too live in in an environment, in a world around us that wants anything and everything besides Jesus, it seems, besides Christ, besides the way the word calls us to live. Oh, I pray that we would be ready with a word, a word with meekness, with gentleness, with fear. Fear not of man, but fear of the Lord in our hearts that we might know how to respond and that we may do so with confidence, understanding this one thing, that this word of which we speak is the truth and it's founded upon the truth, the way and the life in the person of Jesus Christ. And we say thank you for Jesus. Pray this in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen.